Good morning. It is good to see you guys greeting one another, talking with one another. Kind of a smaller crew out there. I think some people snuck away while their kids were at camp. But uh, good to see the rest of you here greeting one another, especially given our topic today. A little smaller crew thought we'd do a little bit of maintenance. I'm going to talk about unity, the unity of our church. Our main passage will be Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Let's look at that together as we start. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We'll spend quite a bit of time in this passage, but for now, I just want you to see that unity must be maintained. It is a gift, but we must maintain it. My oldest daughter just turned 18. She's working in the nursery, and she's now an adult. I don't know how such a young guy got such an old daughter, but as part of her launch package, her grandparents and her mother and I, we chipped in and we got her a Subaru Outback. It was a much nicer car than she could have gotten for herself. We got her a Subaru Outback. It was a gift to her, but she needs to maintain it. It is her responsibility to maintain this car. And so we looked together, we got the owner's manual out of the glove box and we flipped to the schedule that shows what schedule she needs to do what things. Every so often she needs the oil changed. Every so often she needs to rotate the tires and so on. Routine maintenance. The only other time I do maintenance on my cars is if I have a trip coming up, right? Nothing is going wrong when you do routine maintenance and nothing is necessarily wrong with my car, but if I have a big trip coming up, I want to top off all the fluids and so forth. So you know, a few years ago, my family and I took what they still call, my daughters still call, the long trip. <laughs> we all loaded into my SUV, all six of us, and we hitched up our land yacht, you know, big trailer, and we headed off for eight weeks. And we drove over mountain passes and through deserts and into cities and on freeways and country roads and dirt forest service roads and so on. And I knew that this trip would stress the vehicle. And so before we left, I checked the pressure in the tires and I topped off all the fluids and I pretended like I knew what I was looking at and kind of made, made sure everything was in good working order. Unity requires maintenance, routine maintenance, not because something is broken. I actually think our church does pretty well at this, but because it's something that needs to happen routinely. And because we have the long trip ahead of us. We have some things on the horizon that will challenge our unity as a church. Two things I can think of. One is the upcoming political season. I think it's always political season now, but it's like high season coming up. And the other is the changes associated with the move to our new facility. So we've been in this building as a church for 27 years. We have been hosted here. 
And that's going to change. We're going to have a different building, and we will be the hosts, and there's going to be a lot of stuff that changes, and we will be challenged by some of these things. New people coming to visit, new responsibilities to take care of, new decisions to make that we haven't had to make before. Those things will challenge our unity. So before we leave, I want to top off the fluids. Unity is a gift. Like Sabrina's car, it was a gift, but we need to maintain it. We'll start today by defining, I'll attempt to define what church unity really means. I'm going to talk a little bit about how important it is, and then we'll get back to our passage in Ephesians to look at what it means to maintain it. The definition I'll be using for church unity is this. A united church is a diverse group held together by the gospel. Pretty easy. A diverse group held together by the gospel. I find it interesting that when you look at church unity, you end up starting with or getting to our differences. So we're talking about unity, but we end up talking about our differences. True unity requires us to be a diverse group of people. We cannot all be the same. All of the biblical analogies for a church have to do with this diversity, right? We're individual stones being built into a building. We're individual Uh, members of a family. We're individual parts of a body. And for any of those analogies to make any sense, we have to be different. We cannot all be the same and experience true unity. Unity is not general agreement on most things. General agreement on most things ends up being a watered-down, narrow uniformity. That is not biblical Unity. Churches who err towards uniformity tend to get more and more narrow in their definition. It can even show up in their church names, on their signs, right? I came to faith in Oklahoma, and in some of the small towns in Oklahoma, this process of narrowing, of defining themselves, has shown up on their church signs, and you end up with church names that go on and on and tell you everything you need to know about that church. Church names like the First Independent Fundamentalist Evangelical Five-Point Calvinist Conservative Branch of the White as Rice Middle Class King James Only Bible Baptist Fellowship of South Southwestern Bumbleview, Oklahoma. All are welcome, right? (laughs) And you know what you're going to find if you go to that church. You're going to find about 10 people, and they're all going to look alike. And they're all going to talk alike, and they're all going to dress alike, and they're all going to vote alike, and they're all going to be basically the same kind of people. And the other thing you're going to find, if you go there much different, is you're going to find yourself pretty uncomfortable. That is not church unity. But it does make it easy for the church shopper, right? You can drive by, look at the names, and just know what you're going to get. But with a church like ours, a church named Grace, well, it's like Mama used to say. Non-denominational churches are like a box of chocolates. Some of them are full of nuts. You don't know what you're going to get. You're visiting a church and it says grace. I don't know what you're going to find when you come to a church like that. But I hope what you'll find is an increasingly diverse group of people who are held together by the gospel. We can't all be the same. Sabrina's car has got a lot of parts 
It's not just a stack of tires. It's not just a stack of steering wheels. It's got to have all the parts. Our church needs to be diverse. The religious people in Jesus' time were very narrow on who they thought was going to be accepted by God. They didn't all agree on what kinds of people, but they all agreed that it'd be a narrow group and that they'd probably look a lot like them. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was for all people. And this directly challenged their air of uniformity, that it was open to women and children and poor and rich and Samaritans and Jews. And all these distinctions were done away with by the, by the teaching of Jesus. He challenged this tendency to divide that we have, and he challenges us to avoid the same mistake today. So to be a truly unified church, we must be a diverse group, and we must be held together. Not just different, but together. Churches that err in this regard usually end up having little groups. This type of people over here, and this type of people over there, and the two don't usually mix. When my daughters were younger, we were just learning to parent. We're still learning, but we were just learning then. And we had other friends who were just learning to parent, and we would get their, our kids together for play dates. Right? Let's get the kids together, let them play together. And what I noticed is with infants, and even with toddlers and young kids, they don't really play together. They just play near each other, right? My daughter would be over here playing with this, and their kid would be over here playing with this, and they didn't fight or anything, but they weren't really together. And as the kids get older, in adolescence, of course, one of the stereotypes is that the adolescents divide into cliques, right? This group of teenagers don't really invite anybody in, kind of all the same, hang out together. It's their little clique. Whether it's infants and young toddlers or adolescent cliques, these things we look back on and we say, that's kind of immature. That's the similar with churches. We divide ourselves into these little groups based on age. All the kids go over here. All the old people go to that church. We divide ourselves by economic status. We divide ourselves by ethnic background, by language preferences, by politics, by all kinds of stuff. These divisions are natural, like kids playing by themselves. They're human. They're an instinct of the flesh. Unity is of the spirit. Divisions are of the flesh. Unity reflects maturity. Division reflects immaturity. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul says, But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human this passage clarifies that when we strive against one another in jealousy or divide ourselves into little groups, 
we're acting in a human and immature way. To be united, we must be different, but we must be together. Not like infants playing near each other. Not like immature adolescents dividing into little cliques together. The car, Sabrina's car, is not a pile of the same things, but it's also not just a pile of different things. (laughs) All the different parts need to be held together. So a different group, a diverse group, held together by the gospel. It matters what we're unified by. What unifies the church is the gospel. It is the message that God loves everyone and that he sent his son to overcome our obstinance and pride and other sins that prevent us from having the relationship God desires with us. He sent his son to die to pay for those sins and to reconcile us and provide a way for us to have the relationship we were meant to have. His death and resurrection secures our eternal relationship with him. That message of the gospel is what unites us together. Unity is not general agreement about most things. It's an absolute resolve on one thing. And that one thing is the gospel. I had four grandfathers growing up, and all four grandfathers were in the military. And all four served in World War II. And when I would talk to my grandfathers, they would tell me stories about their military buddies, their friends, their brothers in arms. In fact, I'm pretty sure I knew more about my grandfather's military buddies than I knew about his actual brothers. And he would tell these stories, and it was clear. Before military service, these men had very little in common. They were from different places of the country, from different backgrounds, different politics, different races, all kinds of differences. And after the military, they were still different people from different places with different backgrounds and different etc. But they were bonded together because for that period of time, they shared something so important that it overcame those differences. That's how it should be with the church. Before we come to faith, we're all different people, different backgrounds, different fill in the blanks. And after we come to Christ, we're still different people with all those same differences, but we're united around something so important that those things become united around something more important, the gospel. So that'll do for this morning. The definition of church unity, a united church is one that is a diverse group held together by the gospel. Problems with any of those three things lead to problems with with unity. Problems with diversity leads to uniformity. Problems with being held together leads to division. And problems being united around anything but the gospel. And you have just another interest group or club. So, why is this important? To talk about the importance of unity, I want to look at Jesus' prayer for us found in John chapter 17. We'll look at chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. This is Jesus praying for his church. Jesus says, God, I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Wow, what a prayer. Jesus prays for his church and he prays for our unity, that we would be united with him, that we'd be united with each other. So the first thing that I would say, the importance of unity is that it reflects, our unity reflects the Trinity. Not too many weeks ago, Mark preached and he talked about the Trinity. And I know I left completely settled on the matter. I hope you did as well. There were charts with arrows and graphs. And it was this mysterious union, three different parts united in one. And our unity is to be just as mysterious just as awe-inspiring, just as curious, we are to reflect in our unity the unity of the Trinity. The second thing I would draw from this prayer, the importance of unity, is that unity is pleasing and beneficial for us. Jesus prays for our unity for our own benefit. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold, How good and pleasing it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is pleasing. It is good to be a part of a diverse group of people that are bound together by the gospel. We need each other. This series that we are just ending about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, all these different gifts that serve the body, all the things we've learned about how we all are needed to serve one another, We need each other. We need our differences to keep us balanced, to keep us from becoming deaf in our own echo chambers. Unity is good. It is pleasing, and it works. Which brings us to the third part of the importance of unity that I think we can draw from Jesus' prayer. Our unity reflects the Trinity. It's beneficial to us, the church, and it is effective as we go about what God has asked us to do, our witness in this world. Twice in this short prayer, Jesus links our unity with our witness. It says, I want them to all be one so that the world will know, so that the world will believe that you sent me, that you love them. Our unity is our witness. Our unity gives credibility to the truth of our message, the gospel. I think this is why solo missionaries may not be the most effective, right? I'm not saying it can't work, but one person goes off to some place by himself, by herself, with the effort to share Christ with them. The world needs proof. The world needs pudding Proofs in the pudding. The world needs to see how we treat one another. That what we say actually affects the way we interact with one another. With 
without a body, without together, there's no pudding. There's nothing for them to see. No demonstration that what we say is important enough to affect the way we interact with one another, to hold us together despite our differences. Jesus sent his disciples out together to minister. I think that's the best way to serve today. We can gather and just tell stories about how it's going with our individual ministries. I think it's more effective when we do it together. This unique, God-given, church-maintained unity of diverse people is surprising to the world. It's different than the way the world goes about things. Even when, and sometimes especially when, the world celebrates diversity, they end up all looking the same, believing the same, talking the same, dressing the same. Church unity is different than that, and it's supposed to be distinct, unique. It's like a testimony of the importance of what we're describing, what we're witnessing to. So, that's what unity is. That's why it's important. Let's get to the maintenance part. The maintenance is messy. If you're going to change the oil, you don't wear your Sunday best. You put on your overalls. You get ready to get messy. And this maintenance is going to be a little messy too. We're going to talk about politics right here in church. We're going to talk about our preferences, our opinions, what we do with them to maintain unity. That's all right. Pastor Mark will be back to it next week, and he can clean up. <laughs> Let's get back to our owner's manual, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, and look at the items that need to be checked to maintain unity. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the spirit in the bond of peace. These are the fluids that need to be checked. These are the belts that need to be tightened. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. First, notice this is our calling. This is not optional. This is required maintenance. We're talking a lot about cars today. I have been fortunate enough to have had two new cars. I really like having new cars. One of the things I like about having new cars is the warranty, right? My Honda Accord, I'm, I'm sorry, my Honda Odyssey has sliding doors so that all my kids can pile in and out. And about a year and a half after we bought that car, one of those doors didn't work. I just took it in, and they fixed it, and I didn't have to pay for it. That's pretty slick. I also had a new Ford F-150, and can you believe that I broke the cup holder? Like, a hole in which you put a cup, and I broke it. And I'm not joking, because it was part of some console, that was a $350 fix. It was under warranty. I didn't care. Warranty is great, but if you don't maintain your car, you what? You void the warranty. If you take your car in, and it's two and a half years old, it's still under warranty, and you take it in, and you say, my engine's not working, do you know what is going to happen if they say, well, there's no oil in here? You ran this thing out of oil. You didn't maintain this car. That's on you, right? 
We maintain the car to keep it in good working order. If we don't, that's required maintenance. That's on us. If our unity's not working right, and we did something stupid like put the wrong kind of fuel in or let it run out of oil, that's on us. This is our calling. is not optional. We should be eager, this verse says, to maintain our unity. So humility. Humility allows me to recognize that the way I am is not the only way to be. That the way I see things is not the only way to see. It allows me to examine my opinions, even my religious convictions, and it allows me to modify how I present or carry or express those opinions and convictions. Humility teaches me to not be overly concerned with being right. See, pride says, I'm right. I don't need to change the way I am. I don't need to change any of my opinions. People who think right are going to think more and more like me. And you know what? If the truth bothers them, that's on them. Humility allows us to question our opinions and modify how our opinions are expressed. Not all opinions are religious opinions. You can have strong cultural opinions. You can have strong political opinions. Just don't confuse these with religious opinions and divide the church. I told you I came to faith in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is also where I formed my political opinions. And if you know anything about Oklahoma politics, you could probably guess I developed pretty conservative political opinions. And I maintain those today. When I moved to Flagstaff, Arizona, I lived in a variety of places. I was in my 20s. I lived in apartments. I lived in rooms. I lived on couches. I lived anywhere I could. One of the places I lived, I rented a room from a woman who was about my parents' age. I was in my 20s. She was probably approaching 50. And this woman had walked with the Lord for years. And she had a real, authentic, genuine, God-loving faith in Jesus that affected everything she did. And I made the assumption that because we shared this faith, we would also share political opinions. I was really wrong about that. And time after time, I put my conservative right foot into my mouth and would make a comment that only made sense because I assumed, because we shared a faith, we must share this political conviction. And time after time, she would correct me. She would explain with gentleness how her faith in Jesus and her liberal political views were not in conflict with one another. I was schooled. I was humbled. She had a faith and political convictions, and she knew how they went together. I just had the two. I didn't know how they went together. I had to question, challenge, examine my beliefs. I didn't change all of them, but I at least know better why I hold them and how they might be not at conflict with my faith. We need that. The strength of your convictions is not demonstrated by how strongly or loudly you express them. Humility is not a weakness. It is a strength. Strength is better demonstrated 
by how diverse of an opinion you can listen to and remain in a respectful, Christ-like demeanor. Strength is not demonstrated by how worked up you can get about something. Strength is better reflected by how few things can get you worked up. Just because you know something doesn't mean you have to say it. And just because you hold an opinion doesn't mean you have to express it. I am convinced if Jesus were with us during this political season, he would not quickly divulge his political party. I don't think Jesus would be easy to define or quickly labeled. And I think this because of the way he answered political questions that were brought to him. I think if you asked Jesus, who are you going to vote for? Who should I vote for? Jesus would say something like, give your vote to those who require it and give to God what is God's. Some classic Jesus, not evasive, but answering without being labeled kind of answer. Humility allows me to examine my opinions, understand that my opinions may not be correct, and even if I am right, modify how I carry them. The next belt to tighten is gentleness. Gentleness. Be aware of those who are different than you, and do not make this church awkward for them. I believe this is particularly important if you find yourself in a particular majority. If you look like most of the people here, if you vote like most of the people here, then you have to be particularly careful and gentle. My family and I spent five months in Costa Rica, and while we were there, we attended the church nearest to our house, and we were the only non-Costa Ricans there. We looked different, we dressed different, we talked. It was really clear that Spanish was not our first language, and this church was so gentle to us. They were so kind and welcoming. They went out of their way to let us know they wanted us there. We were the cultural minority. We had a linguistic minority, and they were especially gentle towards these. And yes, gentleness is to extend to even our political differences. We have a book that we recommend to married couples. It's called Love and Respect. If you're looking for a good book about marriage, write that down and read it. It's an easy read, Love and Respect. And the one of the phrases that I remember from that book is that you can be right and wrong at the top of your voice. You can be right and wrong at the top of your voice. What you believe can be wrong if expressed in the wrong way. Be gentle. Yes, Brian, but sometimes the truth offends people. I don't want to be tiptoeing around trying not to get people bent out of shape. Just make sure that it's Jesus that's doing the offending, that it's the gospel that they're actually offended by and not you. Humility, gentleness, patience. We need to keep at it, keep inviting people, keep making it clear that we want them here. Be patient. Do not quickly give up. 
Wait patiently for people as they mature in their understanding. Anyone who has watched kids grow up knows maturity doesn't happen all at once. Anyone who's taught in our Sunday school knows that maturity doesn't happen all at once. Be patient with one another. And then finally, bear with one another in love. When all else fails, just put up with one another. The second half of Romans has a lot to do with unity, and especially chapters 14 and 15. For you note-takers that want to look more at this topic, read Romans and linger on chapters 14 and 15. And in these chapters, Paul gives an example of how to handle differences, even in religious conviction. These things you're pretty sure Jesus has convicted you of, how to handle these with humility, gentleness, and patience. His teaching is an example of deference. Deference, deferring to others for their good and to maintain the unity. There is a particular doctrinal question that's being answered in these chapters. Paul knows that he knows the right answer, and yet he defers to another's conviction, even though he knows they're wrong, He not only puts up with it, he actually gives up his freedoms, gives up his rights to accommodate their conviction. Wow. Paul would rather be together than correct. Together rather than right. That is amazing. And we should be eager and unthreatened to follow this example. So let's talk about some of our religious convictions that we don't agree on. And I'm trying to be careful because I know there are a few of these and some would start a fire. So I don't want to do that. I'm going to pick some that are pretty close to what Paul was talking about. Let's talk about alcohol or eating pork, okay? My religious conviction allows me to drink alcohol and to eat pork. I have even had an alcoholic beverage before playing golf that had bacon in it. Okay? So, but I know there are people sitting here whose religious conviction will not permit them to drink alcohol. There are even people in this room whose religious conviction will not allow them to eat pork. I am not asking you to agree, but to understand. It's easy to understand if you think very long why if you read the Old Testament, it says, now and forever and always, I do not want my people to eat pork why people might have a conviction against eating pork. That doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but that understanding can provide unity. I will not judge you because you don't drink alcohol out of a religious conviction, and you don't judge me because I do drink alcohol, and that's permitted by my religious conviction. That's pretty close to a direct application of what Paul would say here. Furthermore, if you come to my house and we share a meal together and you are a vegetarian out of conviction to Christ, also not hard to understand, that was the original plan. We were all designed to be vegetarians. So if that's your conviction and you come to my house and you don't drink alcohol or you don't eat meat, then I will not serve alcohol and I will not serve meat and I will eat with you 
some vegetables. This is not just an opinion. Paul knew that he was right on a significant religious topic, a doctrine. And Paul put up with an incorrect religious conviction out of deference for the other person, out of deference for them, for their benefit, and to maintain unity with them. How should we handle different religious convictions in this church? I believe we should handle it like that. Now, I know there are convictions that are a little closer to the fire than that, a little harder to wrestle with than whether or not you eat pork. What should we do with these? I would suggest that you take those opinions, those convictions, those religious non-negotiables, and that you handle them with humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Patience. Don't rush. There's always time to cut up God's church later. Patience. Just bear with one another. Take those convictions Reread Romans 14 and 15, and then in prayer, bring these before God. God, you've convicted me in this matter. This member of my church sees this differently. How should we proceed? We need to be humble enough to realize that we might be wrong, gentle enough to handle the things we know we're right about, patient enough to keep engaging with those who differ from us, and sometimes we just need to put up with one another in love. You know, when you get your car back from maintenance, you'll meet with the technician, and they will have cleaned up your car, and they hand you the report, and what you're hoping it says is, there's nothing else wrong. All you needed was regular routine checkup. See you in 5,000 miles. And that's what we'll do to conclude. This is not an issue I think we are broken on, that we need repairs on. I have experienced your humility and kindness. I have seen you treat each other with gentleness and respect, and that takes a lot of strength. I'm proud of my church. I love you guys, and I love being united with you around the gospel and as we serve together. And... It's okay to top off the fluids. Knowing there's challenges ahead, the political discussion is about to ramp up. All these groups are going to have their leaders who ask you to follow them into a divisive kind of language, a uh, unchristlike manner of holding opinions. They're going to ask you to follow them. Resist that. Let's stay united even though there's differences among us. And this move that's coming up, Guys, I am praying, and I want you to join me in praying that the types of people who fill the chairs at that new building across town will be all manner of different kinds of people that come to that church just to see what it looks like inside or because they smell Adam cooking meat in the backyard and they're like, I want some of that, unless they're vegetarians or don't eat pork, but it smells amazing, and they come 
or they just want their kids to have something to do during VBS. Whatever reason they come, however they get into those doors, they're going to be a diverse group of people. I want that. I want you to want that. I want this church to grow, grow in our maturity. You know, today is Pentecost. This is the day we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church. What happened at Pentecost? First, the Holy Spirit came with a big fanfare, lots of noise, lots of fire and fireworks. He made his appearance very well known. And then he settled into the work that he's still doing today. He helped people understand one another. He gave a miraculous ability to speak in language that people had not learned, like me being able to speak Spanish or some other language. They heard in a language that they couldn't speak. The Spirit still helps us understand one another despite our differences today. And then he gathered them together. This is the part in Scripture where it says they had all things in common. They gathered, they were united together, and the Spirit is still doing that today. I love this church. Let's keep these fluids topped off for the road ahead. Let's pray towards that end. God, thank you so much for the gift of your church, for the gift of unity. This is far better than we could have afforded on our own. Thank you for the call to live worthy of this gift in unity with one another. God, we imitate Jesus' prayer for us. We thank you for the unity you have called us to. We ask that you would be in us, that we would be in you. And we pray for those who do not yet believe, but who will believe through our message, which is your message, the gospel. And we pray that they too would be one with us. And that through our unity together, the world would know that you have sent Jesus and that you love them and that you desire to have an eternal relationship with them. Father, would you give us the graces of your spirit, the grace of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance? And would these things be the oils that keep things working together as we serve and worship you together as a church? In Jesus' name.